Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. It just feels a privilege to be here on a Sunday like today in your church and your city. And I know that the, the, the murder of George Floyd has, for so many, it's just shifted things. And I know it has shifted things for me, both personally, uh, but also in terms of how we're doing church and what we're thinking about church. Um, things have shifted and it clearly has, and I was encouraged to hear, it clearly has for you as well or for people within this city. I, I saw a Time for Change video and I was just encouraged by it. I was just encouraged by what people are wanting to do. Um, I want to believe with you that today will be significant for uh, not just for the churches but for the city and um, that there'll be benefits that come from now, years to come. You think about, you know, we watched that video earlier that my, one of my daughters put together, just, just really looking at the period of time that we've come out of in the, the last kind of 18 months. And you think about the, the last time the world was under that kind of, I suppose, pressure and challenge would have been the Second World War, probably. And if you think about what happened after the Second World War, things like the NHS, NHS emerged and other things emerged around about that time. Seeds were kind of planted that said we mustn't go through that again. And I think that's going to be the same here, that we've had such a significant period of time that things are beginning to emerge and people are going, do you know what? We're not going to do that again. We're not going to go through that again. Things have come out that is making us do things differently. And for me, that happened. It happened around the church. It happened around issues of race and reconciliation. Uh, my book, I wrote that over 10 years ago. Um, and yet probably now is the moment where I've gone, do you know what? As much as I might be the, a reluctant person in that kind of field, that's what we're trying to build. We're trying to build churches that are genuinely reconciled. And as much as we might think to ourselves, because our churches are diverse, that they're reconciled, they're not really we kind of know they're not really. We know who our friends really are. We know what our real leanings are. And so, um, but there's a moment here where we can do something different. John 17 has been a precious passage for me in relation to this for years. This isn't just a recent thing. I've, even in my book, I think I talk about John 17. This idea of unity. And so it was great to hear that passage being read and... and um, and we, yeah, we're just going to unpack that a little bit and then we're going to look at some of the barriers, I suppose, to building a church that is genuinely reconciled. And where do I get that from, this term, the reconciled church? Because that's what I really talk about now. I get that from Ephesians chapter 2 when, you know, we've, we've talked for years about churches being one new man and one new humanity. And whilst that has been lovely, it has become a tagline for us, which doesn't really have, hasn't really had much depth. And in the same passage, it talks about um, it talks about Jesus reconciling them both to himself. That he reconciled the Jew and the Gentile. He reconciled the differences where there was otherwise hostility, both to himself and he brings peace. That's what that passage talks about. And yet often that reconciliation and that peace is not the thing that we experience. So I want to just, um, having gone through Gen 17 a little bit, highlight some of the barriers to that that we just need to be honest about. 
You know, we need to be honest about what are the what are the sort of subjective things or the subconscious things that drive how I live and drive what I do that we need to change in a moment like this. Now, I know that everyone doesn't think this moment is a moment for change. I do. It's changed the way I lead. It's changed the way I function. It's, it's changed my priorities for the next however many years of leading a church. And, um, and it means that we've gathered people to kind of really speak into these kinds of issues. So we had that passage read, and, and the thing about the passage that Jesus has read, John 17, it is one of my favourite chapters of the Bible. There's a few words at the beginning of it, but the whole chapter are the words of Jesus. Yeah, like Jesus actually speaking. I don't think there's another chapter like it, where half of chap- verse 1 is this explanation of Jesus then prayed, and then the whole of the chapter is Jesus' prayer. And so we must, at some level, take that prayer really seriously. We must think, okay, just before he was taken to the cross, Jesus prayed to his father. What did he say? What were the things that really burned for him? What were the things that he really wanted to communicate both to his father, but also probably knowing I'm communicating something to my, to my disciples here as well? What did he say? It's really interesting because the first part of, part of it, he prays for himself, it says. And he's, in, he's interacting with his father. And then the next part, the bulk of it, he's praying for his disciples, those that he knows. But then at the end, I suppose with, with eyes of faith, knowing what the future would hold, he prays for those who will believe. He was very confident that people would believe. That there would be people down the generations who would come to this place of understanding who he was and what he had done. And it's really interesting what he prays for those who would believe. He doesn't pray that we would know miracles and supernatural healings and all of that. That's not to belittle it, but he doesn't pray that. He doesn't pray that we would take the gospel to the nations and go out. He doesn't pray that. It's not that he doesn't think that's important, but he doesn't pray that in those most intimate of moments. He doesn't pray that. He prays two things. He prays that they would be united, that there would be unity. And he prays that for a reason. He prays that because he says, if they are united, the world will know. If they are together, the world will know. What will the world know? The world will know that you, Father, sent me. It's a really interesting prayer because what it does, it makes, it makes unity part of mission. How will the world know that Jesus is the authentic Son of God? They may know through healings and miracles and churches planted and all of that, but how they will really know is because of the unity of the believers. That's how they'll know. That's what he's praying for. It's interesting that that's what he prays at this moment. The most intimate of moments, he prays for complete unity. Complete unity. And And that the world may know. So sometimes you might think to yourself, you know, we want to be a church. We're out on a mission. We're going to do stuff in Birmingham. All of those kinds of things. Do you know what Jesus says? If you learn to be united, people will know. It's almost like he turns it on its head, mission becomes internal. 
Mission becomes what you do in this room, not what you do outside this room. Mission becomes how you break down barriers here, not how you create bridges out there. And when you look around the world that we live in, you can see that people do not know how to do this. You know, legislation doesn't mean that people of difference love one another. It doesn't. Martin Luther King says, you know, legislation doesn't make people love me, but it does stop them lynching me. Yeah, it does some stuff, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't bring that. It's this. Jesus prays for unity and he attaches his own Um, I suppose, who he really is, who he is to the world, his authentication, he attaches it to the unity of the believers. That's a massive responsibility that we carry. But it's also a responsibility that sometimes we neglect. We don't even realise that our unity counts more to him sometimes than our missional activity. It's almost like he's going, no, no, your missional activity is to become united. It's for the church to look different to the world. It's for people to come in and go, what has happened here? And they're not simply talking about that you sing songs together. They're talking about the barriers that exist out there don't exist in here. That's what the church is meant to look like. That's how we're meant to be. That's not always how we are, though. So he prays for those things. John 17 just paints this very powerful picture of what unity can achieve and how much Jesus relies on it as a marker for people to authenticate his coming, that he was the son of God. But there are barriers to unity. There are barriers to building churches that are truly reconciled. And and sometimes those barriers, and I'm just going to call out some, there are probably many. Sometimes those barriers, as I say, they're subconscious. I don't say them, but I still believe them. I don't say to you, oh, I don't think of this or that, because, you know, maybe I'm a bit polite. I don't want to upset you. But inside, I think to myself, oh, I'm not sure about that. And that's often what we do. We, we create barriers. So I'm just going to call out some of the barriers that we have to building unity and building the, what I'm calling the reconciled church. And so what I mean by that is a church that has Jew, Gentile, a church that has people who would otherwise not be together coming together. I don't have time to unpack all of that, but that is kind of what we're talking about. So here are some of the barriers. The first one is this. We can sometimes think that proximity itself means reconciliation. The fact that our congregations can be diverse, we can kind of think, way, we're diverse. We've got people in our church from different lands. You know, we've got flags. I mean, you don't have flags here, so maybe you do the flag thing. I don't do the flag thing, but it's fine if you do. It's fine if you do the flag thing, but you don't have flags in here. But, you know, churches have put flags up. We've got 30 nations, 40 nations. Wonderful. And yet, I I play badminton. I'm not that good, but I play badminton. My badminton group is as diverse as this church. Yeah? And they're not not believers. Yeah? Some of them are anything but believers. Yeah, they would be the, they're they're not looking for Jesus. But they have come together around a common interest, badminton. Yeah? And we play together. Now, to be honest, in those contexts, They don't put flags up. They don't go, look how many of us there are. They don't do that. They just come and play. Yeah, we just come and play. But so proximity itself 
doesn't mean reconciliation. It does help, though. It can help you lead towards reconciliation, but it doesn't mean it. So you've got to get beyond the fact that the fact that you might be diverse as a community. And, you know, I'm talking to you, but please don't take it like personally. I could say this to any church. The fact that you are diverse doesn't in and of itself mean you're reconciled. It is on the journey towards it, though. It really is. But it doesn't mean it in and of itself. And you know that because... 18 months ago, or, or whenever it was that, you know, 12, 15 months ago when George Floyd was murdered, I imagine it happened in this church as it did in many churches. You discovered that there are some people amongst you who were hurting and you didn't know they were hurting. There was pain you didn't know that there was there. And you might have even been with them. I, I've, I've spoken to leaders, I've spoken to pastors around the country, literally, who would say there were people who had been in my church for 20 years and I did not know what they carried. I didn't know their experience. I didn't know their lives. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And suddenly, in a moment, it came out and we were shocked. I was shocked. It came out in my church. It came out in me. That, that video that was done earlier by my daughter, in many ways it was, part of, it was part of her response to what had happened, trying to understand what's gone on and how it made them feel, what it did. So we discovered that though we were proximate to people, we didn't know their journey. Secondly, another barrier, sometimes we think racial reconciliation is a social justice issue, not a gospel one. And, uh, you know, I won't say what I really think about that because, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being recorded, I imagine. But <laughs> I can understand, I kind of hear it and I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you really kidding me that you think this is just some kind of social justice issue? Because if it's a social justice issue, it kind of becomes optional. Well, you know, yeah, we do some social justice. We do, you know, ministry to the poor. You know, we do ministry to black people. We do other, other forms of social justice. No, this is central. John 17, in Jesus' mind, is not just lots of Hebraic Jewish men when he prays for unity. He prays for those who will believe. Those who will believe, and that includes you and me. That includes a massive group of people who would come to believe who were not the same. But he is attaching his, the way people would see him, he attaches to that. It's not a social justice issue. If it's a gospel issue, though, we have to, it becomes uncomfortable. Okay, how do, we, how do we do reconciliation across barriers? How do we ensure that that is central to what we do? What does that mean for us? That's uncomfortable. I, I get it. Yeah, I've been in our kind of church long enough to know that's uncomfortable. People feel that and they're, oh, you know, how do I get out of that? And some of us are very clever and we can rationalize things. We can sort things. But I just want to say it's not justice. It's not social justice. It's gospel. It's not even purely about racial justice. Yeah, because you can get justice for people and still, you know, if I were being mistreated and you got me justice, I could still hate yeah? Justice doesn't bring love. Justice doesn't reconcile. 
Justice is important, but you have to go beyond justice. You have to get to the point where you reconcile, where you face some of those issues and you look each other in the eye and you go, what, what has Jesus done? And the reconciliation that he brings about, the passage tells us in Ephesians 2, it brings peace. So if you have peace, then maybe you're on the way to reconciliation. If you don't have peace, then there's work to be done. Another one would be, we can justify division by race in the church. We can justify it. I find it difficult, but we can. We can justify it. Because we can justify reaching certain groups of people ourselves. You know, we can justify that, that, our, that our church reaches this group of people. Other churches will reach other people. We justify in London, some of, the, some of the largest churches are homogeneous churches in London. They're not diverse. They're not mixed. Often it's the biggest churches with the biggest resources all look the same. And you think, how do people who are not like that even hear the gospel in that kind of context? How do they do it? Well, one of the ways we do it is we have ministries, don't we? Ministries where we reach out to people, but we're not necessarily expecting those people to be drawn in to shape what we do. We don't mind reaching them. You know, I've got a ministry here, I've got a ministry there, but we don't necessarily want them to come in to begin to shape what we do. We justify division by race. We justify it by other things as well, but I won't go into that. But we definitely can justify it by race. And therefore, we're not that bothered if it's not there we're like well you know different churches do different things yeah there is a gospel that if we preach it right it will pull people from everywhere it really will if you preach it right and the reality is that when we do that when we justify divisions in churches people who are not christians it makes no sense to them it makes no sense to them that churches can be purely, you know, the, almost churches can be the most segregated groups in the world or in the city. It makes no sense to people. How does that work? How do people who say God loves everyone simply break down by colour and race? How do they do it? Yeah, but we can do it and we need to not do it. There are people who don't entertain Christianity and faith because when it comes to issues around race and reconciliation, we have nothing more to say than the person down the road. And one of the sad realities I have found over the past 15 months or however long it's been since George Floyd died is that pastors can have no more, no more wisdom on these issues than the person who lives next door to them who doesn't know Jesus. That their response is exactly the same. Oh, yeah, yeah, we must all be anti-racist. I'm like, yeah. You know, the Bible doesn't actually talk about anti-racism. It talks about lots of other things that would apply. And then another barrier, fourth barrier, um, final barrier. We believe reconciliation is an earthly ideal, but a heavenly reality. So we go to Revelation 7, where it talks about every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne before the Lamb, and they're singing songs to Jesus. We go there, and we think, oh, I just long for that day, that heavenly reality, when all the nations are there. Yeah? 
And some of us, if that's what you believe, then when it comes to reconciliation here on earth, you're going you're gonna to struggle. And you'll struggle partly because it's difficult, and you'll struggle partly because you think to yourself, I'm not sure that that's going to happen here. Yeah, And therefore, that motivation is, you know, there's, there's an inner motivation that is lacking if you really think deep down in your heart, Jesus is going to reconcile us when we all die. And you don't necessarily believe that Jesus is going to have an expression of that reconciliation here when we're alive. And so that can really, that can be a, a thing for people. But why do we believe? Why would I say, no, no, reconciliation is something that we are to aim for here on earth. It's never going to be perfect, but it can be better than it is. Yeah, we can, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm involved in New Day. And one of the things I'm so deeply desperate for in New Day is that we do not leave to that generation a church that is not reconciled. Because they're not like us in this sense. Yeah, I, I don't know much about teenagers. I know I work at New Day, it sounds odd. But I'm not, I'm not really youthy. I don't, you know, my kids are in their 20s now, so I don't, I don't always get it. Yeah. What I do know, though, is, they, is they're very authentic. They like things to be real. And so if they don't see something that's real, they're not interested. And they'll go anywhere. They're not like us where we would, there'll, there'll be things that I think because I've been trained to think that way for year after year after year after year. That means it will haunt me from doing some things. But we're bringing up a generation that aren't like that. We're bringing up a generation that will go to wherever they find the answer to their problems. I've, I've had conversations with younger, I suppose, younger Christians, people, I suppose, under 30, really, under 20. And some of them will connect far better to people on social media than the pastor in their own church. They won't think twice about that. If he's saying something that makes more sense to them, then they'll connect to it. We don't want to leave that generation a church that is in a bit of a mess when it comes to racial reconciliation. We, we want to leave them a church that is much more understood on this, that, that they would understand it, that they would be able to fight for it, that they would have vision for it. That's the kind of thing we want to leave them. There are many things we want to leave them, but we want to leave them that. So because we have these barriers in place, and again, it, it just sounds really hard, but because we have these barriers in place, I have to be honest about the gospel that we have been preaching and I've been preaching, that people have been preaching for decades. We have to ask, what fruit has there been when it comes to reconciliation with our brothers and sisters who are different to us when all those underlying barriers are there? What difference has it made? What's been the fruit of it? Well, churches still remain segregated by race. It's wonderful that your churches in Birmingham are coming together. The thing to pray is that that marks a shift in how things work. Yeah, that there is a shift, that there is a spiritual reality to it, not just the physical reality of the meeting, but there is a spiritual dynamic to it, that churches won't, will no longer be happy that they're segregated by race. They'll be going, no, God, we need to do something about this. We need to respond to this. Secondly, we have to be honest that all the preaching that we have done, our diversity has been driven by the culture around us, not by our own intentional reaching out to people and preaching a gospel of reconciliation. People have come into our churches. It's been wonderful. Churches have grown through diversity, sometimes without ever saying a word. They've just grown. Why? Because we live in that kind of society. 
We live in a society where people mix, where people live. You know, you live in Birmingham and it's incredibly diverse. We were around it, yes, it's incredibly diverse. Although we got lost, we kind of felt at home. Although we didn't know where we were, we was like, oh yeah, we've been in cities where there's just whole groups of people from different places. That's what your city is. Yeah? You don't need to do much to reach people who are different. They'll walk in the door. But you need to do quite a lot to break down the barriers that exist between them. And so that you do something that your city is unable to do. So diversity at the moment is driven by the culture around us. Even with our best gospel preaching, it still is. And as I said before, reconciliation is as rare in churches as it is anywhere else. Harvey Kriani, who writes a book, uh, Multicultural Kingdom, it's called. Quite recently, he's written this book, and I know a number of people have read it. In his book, he writes, he says, 92% of churches in the US are monoethnic. 65% of churches in the UK are monocultural. How, how, how can that be when the gospel we preach is not monocultural or monoethnic? Yeah? When the first missional church in Acts 13 has a diverse leadership team. How, how is it that we have ended up in a situation where we're just different, different groups? We have to be honest with ourselves. The fruit of the gospel that we've been preaching for decades, that's, that's the result of it. That's the result of it. And we've been shocked over the last 15 months that there might be something different that we need to aim for and look to. But the thing we need to aim for and look to still comes from the scripture. It's not like we just now need to make up some stuff. It's not now we need to follow a secular gospel. No, we still need to follow the gospel. We need to recognize, oh my goodness, we have not preached reconciliation with our brothers as much as we should have done. Of course, we've preached reconciliation with God. We do that all of the time. But we need to preach a reconciliation with our brothers and our sisters. It needs to become part of our DNA, part of the way we do church. So finally, I've just got some hopefully practical things that you can do as a church. As you are in this time for change, hopefully this moment that you have this afternoon is not just a moment where you go, right, great, we've done that. But it's, it's like the launch pad of something that changes the way church happens in Birmingham. I'd love that to be the case. But here are four things. Is it four? Yeah, four things that you can do. The first is you need to commit to pray. What you need to pray for is supernatural revelation. Blind eyes need to be opened. You remember the story of um, the man who was healed on the Sabbath, who, who, who was, um, I think he was lame, or was he blind? He was blind, he was healed on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said, um, the person who did this can't be from God, because if they were from God, they would never have done it on the Sabbath. That, that was their kind of take. So the fact that God was working in their midst was irrelevant. They couldn't see it because you wouldn't do that on the Sabbath because you don't do that on the Sabbath. We must pray that our blind eyes are open because some of us function like those Pharisees without even realising it. Oh, if this were really God, this would be what would happen. Not that. God sometimes does things in ways that we don't imagine. It's hard to believe that Jesus, according to the Pharisees, broke Sabbath rules. My goodness. It's hard to believe that, but he did. So we need to pray for supernatural revelation. And I, I would encourage you to do that because that requires humility and openness. It means you go, oh God, maybe I haven't got it all right. Maybe there are things I don't see. 
and I don't even see what I don't see. You need to pray for that. Secondly, you need to commit as a community of believers to grow in deeper understanding. It was mentioned earlier that we've, we've developed a little booklet called Pathway to Peace, which again we developed off the back of George Floyd's murder. And it's just a way of you beginning to understand where, where am I on this process of understanding? How do I grow in deeper understanding? How do we in our small groups just begin to understand these things a bit better? And I just think you need to commit to that. You need to commit to read, to, to, to talk, to... to um, you know, to, to read books, talk to one another, pray. You just need to commit to these things. And then I think you need to commit to build differently. And this might cause some of us to go, oh, what's he going to say now? He's going to build differently. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting a new gospel. Yeah, I'm suggesting that we truly resurrect the old gospel of reconciliation. Yeah, there is a gospel of reconciliation with our fellow man. And I just believe, and you have in this church, I know because what I know about Jonathan is he's a Bible teacher. He's a preacher. Yeah, you have people who can preach. When you start preaching reconciliation with people, you'll be surprised what God does. You make that a thing. You begin to preach it. So to build differently, reaching diversity locally, making room for people who are different. As I said right at the beginning, our primary mission field, in my view, not everyone's going to agree with it, it's here. You make it work here, people will be drawn to you. If the divides that exist out there also exist in here, they won't. Or they might be drawn because the music's nice and the people are friendly. Yeah? But the gospel's way more than that. It's way more than that. So you commit to build differently. Because God has given us the opportunity to build differently in cities like Birmingham, in cities like London, because the world's a global village, it's increasingly diverse. That it doesn't happen everywhere, but it has happened here. And what you might even find here is that as you commit to that and people are drawn to you, some people will come from different nations. And you know what? Because I've seen this happen, some of them will want to go home and do the same thing. Yeah, they'll want to take a gospel that's full of grace, that changes stuff. And they want to take it back to where they've come from. And you read about that in Acts. People were always going home. People were always going back. And then my final application point is commit to, to attend this afternoon. Now, I can't attend. I'm sorry, I can't attend. And it's not because I hate the Blues particularly. They're quite a good team, but they're in a different division, I think, to the team I support. And that's fine. Um, but I would, I, would, I would encourage you to attend. If you're on the fence, if you're thinking, oh, the weather's not great, you know, and you, you're like that, let me just encourage you to attend. And I, I, I want you to attend because I want you to understand some things. I want you to understand that for Pastor Calvin, who I've never met, I don't know him, for him to stick his neck out and do that thing and to draw other pastors and other church leaders along, it's massive. It's massive. Because remember, in his history, his history will be a history of rejection. So when a church like this turns up, it's healing to the soul. It really is. I know that, leading a church which has, you know, certainly when I began leading the church, there were more white people than there were black people. 
I realised when, after George Floyd died, I had a friend who, 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 just so I suppose a white friend who I knew, who was broken by it. He was broken by what he had hurt. When I had a conversation with him, I didn't realise how healing that was going to be. When this guy, he was broken, he was in tears. He was trying to, what can I do? That was his response. So it's healing when people who are not like you attend something that you've put on to go, we're with you. So I, I, just, want to, I just want to kind of throw that out there, not to kind of put any manipulative pressure on you to go, but because um, there's nothing in it for me particularly. But I just think there is something about that when you worship together, when you pray together, when you stand together, God's going to bless what you're doing. And finally, you'll... We're going to kind of sing a song in a moment. You guys might want to just prepare yourselves. We're going to sing a song in a moment. That, that video that, that my daughter put together right at the beginning that had the verse at the end, I'll see the, the goodness of God in the land of the living. So often I like to understand this issue of race and reconciliation in the context of the fact that God is a good God. That yes, evil happens, we know that. Wrong things, bad things, oppressive things happen in the world. But we also know the truth. We also know the truth that all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love God, according to his will and purpose. It doesn't mean that all things are good, but they do work together for good. They work together for good. So in the end, whatever happens, because God is a good God... Because we love a God who is good, who's full of goodness and kindness towards us, he works everything for his purpose. Yes, it must have been, I can't even begin to imagine how George Floyd's family responded to his death and they had to respond to that publicly. And I don't know whether any of them were Christians. I don't know that. What I know, though, is that for all the pain, God is good. And he works things together for good. So we can trust him in that. We can go down this road that it might appear uncomfortable and tricky and difficult for us. But we trust in a good God. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this church and just their love for you. It's really obvious that they love you. It's really obvious that you're with them. Uh, And I want to pray, Father, that this church will become such an example of this issue of racial reconciliation. I pray, Father, that what happens here will surprise them as well as touch others. I I pray for that, Father. I pray that you'll do something, not just in the hearts of individuals here, but I pray you'll do something in the heart of this community that allows them to see and put this centre stage in all that you're doing. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.